Brings back memories, doesn't it? It's such a blessing to have the Cokes here as <clears throat> our ministers of music. And we are looking forward to the days when we will be able to once again join together and sing as a choir and play uh, instruments together and uh, the bells and whatnot. But until that time, I'm, I'm grateful for God's blessing. Are you? Hey, let's just take a minute, shall we? I mean, it's a strange time, strange place. Why don't you turn and wave to somebody? You haven't been able to, to shake their hand, but why don't you wave to them? Let them know. <laughs> it's good to see you. Glad you're here. If you're at home, uh, tuning in by Blue Mountain TV or just turn to your, your loved one or your friend or um, say thanks to God for somebody if you're all by yourself and because uh, worship is about being together in Christ and so I'm glad we can do that. Also, worship is about remembering wonderful people and I just have to say that we do... Um, our, our hearts go out to a number of people, a number of families that lost loved ones recently. Um, good friend of yours and mine, Ben Stoll, passed away this week, and I know that that has impacted a lot of us here, and especially his family. But another person, historic member of Village Church, Effie Pampion, passed away on Thursday, 110 years old. So Effie has gone to rest with our Savior and um, looking forward to that great and awesome day when, when she will be called forth from the grave, right? That's what we're looking for. Either that or listening to it in person, alive, right? As Jesus Christ returns in the clouds. What a, what a great day that will be. Before we do our study, let's just pause and ask for God's anointing. Lord, I need your strength and power as we study and as I speak. I pray that you'll also bless every person who hears and listens. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Trust is core to life. Trust. Here's how one counselor described it. Trust is something that is irrefutably necessary for the success and happy, happiness of all relationships, all relationships. Without it, without it, you live in a continual state of tension with yourself and with others. With it, you learn, you grow, you thrive, and relationships flourish. Trust. We are into the second of our six-part prophetic Christmas series and uh, I'm grateful to Pastor John for being first off the last Sabbath and going into that study, a very interesting study about Jesus, the Son of Man, the, the term that he used most often to describe himself. Son of Man, Jesus, that's what he is. He's the one who conquered where we failed. He's the one who succeeded where we struggle. He's the one who had victory and his victory is our triumph. And I have to just say, praise the Lord for that. And that's what Christmas is all about. Today, <clears throat> and each of the times we get together as a body to, to worship through the month of December, 
we're going to be looking at the various ways that Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies in his birth. The first two chapters of the book of Matthew are our basis for most of this study, and it includes six significant aspects of Jesus' birth and his infancy that were that matched predictions of the prophets of old. And that's what we'll be looking at today. <clears throat> These providential intersections were very important to Matthew. That's why he mentioned them. And he, <clears throat> excuse me, every time I cough, I think it's a COVID cough. <laughs> you know, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of weird that way these days. <clears throat> Don't worry. <laughs> but these providential intersections that the book of Matthew mentions are strategic highlights that Matthew, under the inspiration of God, wants us to learn and be encouraged by. He, wants, he uses them to inspire us and to instruct us as we focus on Jesus coming to earth and its significance for us today. Today we're going to examine the first prophetic marker in the New Testament. It's, it's the first sentence of the New Testament, New Testament Bible. Believe it or not, believe it or not, it's a call to trust. A call to trust. So open your Bibles if you want to or look at the screen to... Matthew chapter 1 and verse number 1. Here's the first verse of the New Testament, and it begins this way. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, I don't know about you, but that's kind of a strange way. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Now I won't drink from it, but I'll be all better now. But that's my security blanket right there. So, I don't know how you relate to that first verse, but I look at it as kind of a strange way to start a book. With genealogy, are you kidding me? Genealogy? Uh, to start the most, most momentous story ever told? Start it with a genealogy? Who wants to read a long list of people's names before getting into the story? I don't know about you, but that wouldn't make it if it were a book for today, bestseller book. Anyway, maybe you know about this. The, you know, whenever a former first lady writes a memoir, you know it's going to get lots of sales. And that's what happened with Michelle Obama. Uh, but just think, if she would have started her book called Becoming, if she'd have started her book with page after page of genealogy, do you think it would have sold 10 million by now? I don't think so. Would anyone get past the boring introduction? I don't think so. So immediately I ask myself this question, why in the world would Matthew start this way? With a genealogy of Jesus. Historian and Bible scholar George Knight says it this way, it was the most natural and most interesting way to begin the story of a person's life. Now, it's not today. That's not the way we think of it as a natural and interesting way. But 
the Jews in Jesus' day, for them, it was the only way, the only legitimate way to begin a story. That's because in that day, pedigree was important. Not just important, pedigree was monumental. Family, clan, tribe. That was, that was vital information. Especially if you were some important person. Like, for example, a priest. There had to be, if you were to serve as a priest in the days of Jesus, there had to be an unbroken record back to Aaron. That was essential. If you couldn't prove it, if family records weren't there to show it, you were excluded. You could not serve as priest. No matter what you may think or say, if the record wasn't there, you couldn't do it. If lineage, if lineage was important for priesthood, which it was, can you imagine how essential it was if you were to call yourself Messiah? Messiah, of course, you know, is Hebrew for anointed one or chosen one. And in the Old Testament, that's what they did to signify very important roles and responsibilities in, in culture. If you were a prophet, if you were a priest, if you were a king, you were anointed. You were an anointed one, a chosen one. And you were set apart for this position of responsibility with the anointing of oil. It was like code for being called of God, chosen of God, consecrated for the work that he called you to do. Christ, of course, is the Greek equivalent of that Hebrew term, Messiah. Messiah, Hebrew, Christ in Greek, the anointed one, the chosen one. Now, if Jesus' ancestry, if he's to be called the Christ, if he is the Christ, then it must be that he could trace his ancestry back or you couldn't write about him. You couldn't say anything about him. No Jew would read or pay any attention to it if you couldn't establish that. Ancestry was important. But it also had to be demonstrated that Jesus had particular ancestors. Not just any. They had to be particular. God had told David through the prophet Nathan, these words, 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Look carefully at those words, established forever. The Messiah would be, would be an ancestor of David, according to prophecy. Matthew announces this in the first sentence of the first book of the New Testament. This one, Jesus, was the son of David. The son of David, Messiah, had come. Now, of all the titles that Jesus had and was given, and there's lots of them, Lamb of God, Redeemer, Cornerstone, many, many more. Of all those other titles, son of David, one uh, Bible student said, William Barclay, his name, son of David, was the most deeply rooted in the history the tradition, and the expectation of the Jewish people. Son of David. It was foundational. For the Jews, for the Jews, there was never a king like King David. 
He was paramount. Now there had been others who had moments of greatness, stints of glory for those who sat on the throne in Judah and Israel, but none of them, none of them, even those that had those, those moments, those pinnacle moments in their lives, none of them rivaled David, king of Israel. The prophet Samuel described God's character quest for the one who would sit on Israel's throne as being David, like David. Then notice this, 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. That's what God seeks. That's what he sought for, for the, the one who would sit on his throne. That's really who he seeks in every one of our lives. He wants us to be after his own heart. And that pivotal statement finds a home in David. That's the kind of man he was. He would be forevermore esteemed as a man after God's heart. Paul, speaking to believers in Antioch, said what every Jew believed in Acts chapter 13, 22. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He'll do everything I want him to do. David, man after God's heart. David, a man in mindset, in attitude, in ambition, in disposition. He was for God. He knew God could be trusted. He knew God deserved his obedience. He trusted in God. He had faith in God. And God rewarded his faithfulness. And this faithfulness, David's attitude was really on display uh, in, in a special way, center stage in the first memorable act of this one who was anointed by God before he was even close to being king. After being anointed, he faced a soldier slaying, courage eliminating, 9.5 foot tall Goliath who was taunting God and taunting God's people. King Saul and everybody else rattled in their boots. And for 40 days, it says in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 11, that all of Israel was in dismay and terrified. 40 days, 40 days, Goliath came out at dawn and at, and at dusk, morning and evening. He stepped out and he mocked God's people. He mocked God until, until the day a shepherd boy arrived with food supplies for his older brothers and for the commander and David saw what was happening and in God's strength and honor, he stepped out and what he did became historic, became a hallmark became a, a testimony of his attitude during his, his whole life. And when Goliath saw this, 
um, when David saw Goliath, he said in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 26, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That was David's attitude. Everyone else was shaking and terrified. But David said, how can he do that? He can't do that to God. He can't do that to God's army. And so with a shepherd's staff and grabbing five stones, David approached the giant. And Goliath, when he saw this young boy, he despised him. It says in Scripture, he scorned his youthfulness. He mocked his immature prowess. And he ridiculed God. He said, verse 44 of 1 Samuel 17, Am I a dog that you come out after me with sticks? I'm going to give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. (laughs) Goliath taunted. But David's faith, it's historic. It's monumental. It's epic. Verse 45 to 47 David says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. It's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord. That's David. That's the David, the man after God's heart. David was young, yeah, but he was not inexperienced when it came to faith. He knew faith. He had experienced God's trustworthiness. He knew what God could do. He knew who God was. He knew how God could act. He had seen him at work in his life. And he said, verse number 37, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David, a man after God's own heart. That's what he was. But you know, David's faith wasn't blind. Some people talk about faith today like it's blind trust. That's not faith. That's not real faith in God. Faith in God is not blind trust. Modern notions of trust or faith picture it that way, like it's a step in the dark. But that's really not biblical faith. Biblical faith rests on solid ground. Solid ground of God, on God's faithfulness, God's goodness, God's grace, God's mercy toward us through life. A trust that relies on evidence of his trustworthiness. That's faith. No, David wasn't perfect, not by any means. He made some gigantic mistakes that, that rocked his life. And his rulership. But David was faithful. That's what he was. David was faithful. David's deepest desire was to follow God. Follow God with all his heart. And do whatever God wanted him to do. He loved God. And he dove deep into God's ways. God's law. God's character. And he was truly thankful Thankful for God's goodness, for his grace, for his mercy. And when David sinned, which he did, big, he was repentant. He was sorry, truly sorry, deeply pained, but always 
He knew God's grace. In all these ways, David was a man after God's own heart. That's what he was. And to him, God made this astounding promise. 2 Samuel 7, 16. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. What a promise. What a promise. God promises his faithfulness to Israel through David's line forever, forever. Of course, it's conditional. It's conditional on, well, God's going to be faithful. He promises that. But David's descendants who ascend to rulership, they have to be as faithful as David was. Unfortunately, unfortunately, not one of the kings that followed David was as faithful to God as he. Yeah, there were some good ones. There were some some special moments. But over and over again, instead of trusting, trusting God, trusting God's plans, God's ways, they followed their own way, their own plans, their own wealth, their own military might. And eventually, you know the story, eventually it led to the destruction of their kingdom by a foreign power an exile into lands, into the diaspora among the nations. But even there, even separated, even in diaspora, the memory of God's promise was always with Israel. The memory of God's promise of David, the righteous king, and the promise that his descendants would, would reign on the throne forever. Forever, that, that promise lived in their hearts. In exile, even away from Jerusalem, Jews dreamt of a golden age. They dreamt of a time when their, their ruler would be connected with David's line and would rule in, in beauty and power. It was a cherished hope. They knew, they, they believed that God would be faithful to his covenant. They believed that God would reestablish his, his purpose to bring greatness through such a king as David. And this is repeated over and over again through the hardest of times by prophets in the, in the Old Testament. For example, Isaiah over and over again. This was his dream. For example, Isaiah 9 verse 7, we could quote many others, but he said, of the greatness of his government, and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne, talking about this great one. On David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Yes, the Spirit of God, they believed, they trusted, would live in this one mightily. They would, would give this one wisdom and power and might and goodness and that would bring about a transformation, a transformation of, of global consequence and peace and justice like, like Eden days. They believed that. <coughs> this offspring of David would usher in a reign of God, a reign of God that would bring peace and harmony, not, not just among people, but even among animals. And you know those verses, the lion with the lamb and the bear and the, and the, the goat. And, 
and the child shall be near a, a, a viper and not be harmed. All it goes, the whole earth would be filled with God's goodness like the waters covering the ocean. That was their hope. That was Isaiah's hope. And that was a prophetic dream of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5 and 6, he said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Notice that. Raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely, wisely and do what is just and right in the land. Jeremiah got this prophetic message during the, the exile of Judah. But he still believed and hoped that by this name, would be called one who would be the Lord, our righteousness, our righteous Savior. Yes, God would raise up a righteous branch, a branch of David. And under his good and equitable rulership, there would be, he would be a righteous Savior. And Israel would prosper once again. That was a hope. The prophet Amos shared the same dream. He prophesied that the rebuilding and restoration would come through King David's line, notice in Amos chapter 9, verse 11, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will build it as it used to be. So you can see over and over again, the glory and honor of David's throne, his reign would be restored under his seed. That was Amos's hope. That was the dream of the prophet Zechariah. That was was a dream of Hosea and Ezekiel, all these great prophets of old, that it ran deep in Israel's veins. But as I think of it, to Israel, it must have seemed that this hope, this promise, had been lost. Kings that served after David were more characterized by wickedness and apostasy than goodness, integrity, and honor that David's reign had known. Eventually, Jerusalem was conquered by foreign armies. The city is ransacked. The temple is destroyed. And Israel is enslaved to foreign powers. Not just one, two, three, four Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. Year after year, Israel wondered. God's people wondered. Lord, it says it in Psalm 89, verse 49. This was the yearning of every follower of God, every Jew. Lord, where is your former great love? Which your faithfulness you swore to David. This was the lament of Israel. Where is it, God? It looks like your words, God, are empty promises. It looks like your faith, that your faithfulness that you swore to David isn't going to come through. It seems as though God is not trustworthy. Enter the first verse of the New Testament. (laughs) That's where it is. The first verse of the story of Jesus. And what it is, now we look at it and say, it's just genealogy. Hey, it's much more than that. It's celebration. It's declaration. 
It's saying God is faithful. God is trustworthy. God will continue to be trustworthy to his promises. What he said is going to come true. That's what it's saying. Jesus is the promised king. The promised king of David to come. God is faithful. That's what Matthew is saying. God is faithful through Jesus. Jesus is God's promised one. Jesus is God's response to this epic promise given to David. And this is the promise that Israel was relying on. This is the promise that would impact all of humanity. Now, the point of Matthew in the first verse, in the first lines of the New Testament, is not merely to say that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. That's important. That's important. It's important to show that he was in the line of David and that he was, he was rightful for him to be called the Messiah. He was. He is. But Matthew's biggest point, and the point that we fail when we fail to see when we read these verses so quickly or when we skip them altogether, is that God can be trusted. God promised it. And he's going to bring it about. God is faithful. For 600 years, for 600 years, tyrants had been ruling over Israel. Foreign kings, some brutal and vicious and destructive. Others, you know, more supportive and generous, yes, but but still foreign. For 600 years, they'd ruled over Israel. And for 500 years, God had been silent. No prophetic language, no prophetic message, no messages, no word of something better from God. Silence. 500 years. 500 years. The question in everybody's mind, is God faithful? Is he trustworthy? Would he keep his promise? The promise that he made to David. The promise he made to God's people. Would he keep it? Century after century. Generation after generation. Hope seemed distant. And God's faithfulness appears to wane. It's true. Trust is core to life. Trust. But you know, trust is an endangered commodity today. You know that. We distrust everything. We distrust the news. We distrust media. We distrust the government. We distrust politics. We distrust polls. We distrust vaccines. We even distrust the church. We distrust everything. Yet trust is irrefutably necessary for relationships to thrive, and especially our relationship with God. There has to be trust. For 20 years, the Edelman Trust Barometer has been measuring trust. 
the study measures people's relationship to four institutions. It does it measures trust this way. Four in social institutions. They are government. They measure the trust in government, the trust in business, the trust in NGOs, in other words, nonprofit organizations that operate independently of, of any government, and media. So those four things, they, they measure government, business, NGOs, and, and media. And the two components that they look at in this Edelman Trust Barometer, the two components that undergird trust, as they understand it, are these. Competence. In other words, does the government, does politics, does, does, do NGOs and media, do they, do they deliver on their promises? Competence. Number two is ethical behavior. Those are the two elements of trust. Doing the right thing and working to improve society. Well, you know, they, they did a study back in January 2020. This is before COVID even began. Edelman Trust Barometer. And their research revealed that none of these four institutions, all, of, all the institutions that they look at for society, none of them is seen as both competent and ethical by anyone. There's a lack of trust. Trust dearth in our world today. There's a growing sense of this inequity and unfairness in everything that's going on today. There are deep-seated fears that we have about our future. We're we're wondering, aren't we? People are worried. (laughs) Worried. Is technology out of control? People are worried because their futures are, are... beyond them. They're, they're wondering whether there'll be a recession. They're wondering whether they'll have a job. They're wondering whether they have enough training. They're wondering whether automation will take their job. They're wondering whether their jobs will go overseas. People are wondering. They're worried. Trust is at a low. People are worried that leaders can't be trusted. They can't be trusted to, to address the challenges of our day. People are worried. People worry that that the quality of information is distrustful. That media is contaminated with untrustworthy information. Have you ever heard that before? That fake news is being used as a weapon. And this all at a time when we're relying more on media information than ever before. I mean, we have so many big things at stake, don't we? The coronavirus, the presidential election, momentous events in our, in our country and world. And we're distrustful of the source of our information. This morning, you may even find yourself distrustful of God. He just hasn't come through for you like like you felt he should. I have good news for you this morning. Good news. The son of David has come. The son of David has come. Matthew announces it. Luke affirms it. Luke 1.32, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Paul proclaims it, that Jesus was a descendant of David, Romans 
And the next to the last words in the New Testament, the next to the last words of Jesus in the whole Bible are these. I am the root and offspring of David. Yes. The son of David has come. 17 times in the New Testament, it describes Jesus as son of David. Son of David. And the title is more than just genealogy. We've established that, haven't we? I hope. It's more than just heritage. The title is hope. Hope. It means, it means God can be trusted. It means that the long-awaited deliverer has come. That's what it means. Two blind men crying out for healing knew who this one was. They said, have mercy on us, son of David. Matthew 9, 27. The crowds that lined the pathway into Jerusalem spread their coats, cut branches from trees, laid them on the road in front of Jesus and shouted. They knew who he was. Hosanna to the son of David. Matthew 21, verse 9. The blind men and lame that Jesus healed in the, court, in the temple court and the youth that gathered to him there. They knew who Jesus was. Matthew chapter 21, verse 15. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. When people were astonished with his power, when people needed help, power from God for themselves, they greeted this one, this long-awaited one this long-expected one, Messiah, as son of David. Son of David. But there was one interesting exchange that I want to just dwell on for a moment that Jesus had with religious leaders of his day and this, this title, son of David. Jesus asked them one time, you can see this in Matthew 22, he asked them one time about what they were thinking about Messiah. Okay, what do you think Jesus said to them? And he said to them, whose son is he? Matthew 22, verse 42. And they immediately replied, he's the son of David. Huh, son of David. Then Jesus drew their attention to where that came from. That's Psalm 110. And the psalm written by David points to something greater than David. This is what it says in the first verse. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now look at that verse. You notice it? The first Lord there is who? God, okay? The second Lord, who is the second Lord in that verse? That's a promised Messiah, isn't it? It's not David. It's the promised Messiah. But notice that the psalm says, you know, interestingly, the Pharisees already acknowledged that the Messiah would be the son of David, right? But in the psalm, David calls Messiah his Lord. And this means that the title son of David isn't enough to describe Jesus. Yes, he is son of David, but he's also Lord. 
He's Lord. Lord of you. Lord of me. Jesus, yes, he was son of David by lineage. But Jesus was also the hope for Messiah, the Lord God himself. And he's as much different for them back in that day than he oftentimes is for us in our day. They were expecting something completely different. The psalm speaks of Messiah's enemies being put under his feet. And that's what the Jews were expecting, a Messiah that would, be, that would rule Rome and, and others, a Messiah that would be a mighty warrior, a, a conquering king, a Messiah that would rule and reign over Israel's enemies. That's what, that's what the Jews were expecting. But Jesus' rulership supersedes human governance. The kingdom that he rules over is not just Rome. It's not just the United States. It's everything in the universe. He's Lord of all. The, the kingdom, his kingdom is the universe and he's king over everything right now. Now, it may not feel that way to you. You may sense something different. But Jesus sits on the seat of highest authority. It says in Scripture that he, the highest place in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And he reigns. Trust is necessary, isn't it? <laughs> Trust is necessary for relationships. Trust is essential in our relationship with God. If Matthew's first prophetic word says anything, it says this. God is worthy of our trust. God is worthy of our trust. Jesus, son of David, has come. And he's powerful to help you, to help me, to save you, to strengthen me. He may not be visible. We may not see him with our eyes. But there's more to power and strength in unseen ways than in anything you may see. God is strong. He's available. The son of David has come. Trust him now. Trust him now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the hope you give us through Jesus Christ. We thank you that he's come. He's come in ways that, in a way that we never expected, wasn't anticipated, but it was truly your way and the way you had planned from the start. And he rules and reigns even now in a world that's torn by strife and violence and misapprehension and distrust. He rules. You reign, Lord. And may you rule and reign in our hearts, in our lives, as we put our trust in you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.